0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Deadhead Cannabis Show. I'm Larry Mishkin of Michigan Law in Chicago with my co-host today, Rob Hunt. Uh, Jim Marty, uh, our current co-host but soon-to-be-retired ex-co-host, is uh, out on the East Coast this week doing a site visit. So we're pushing back his farewell schedule by a week, and next week and the week after, we'll uh, we'll say our goodbyes to Jim and hear a little bit more about his story and uh, the words of wisdom he has to give all of us before he takes off to that great new uh, location in uh, Nevada uh, where people go when they can afford to retire. So, Jim, good for you. But today we got a great, great show to talk about. Lots of interesting things on the marijuana news side, which we'll get to in a minute. Uh, some stuff going on over in Germany. Some stuff in South Dakota that, surprise, surprise, involves Christy Noem. And uh, we'll get to that. And some new standards that are being installed in um, California and uh, what those might mean to uh, the the industry out there. Uh, on the music side today, uh, we have a uh, Rob Hunt pick, December 5th, 1979, from the Uptown Theater in Chicago, an amazing old place that unfortunately I never got to see the dead in. And I will take this time again to call up my friend Harold for finding two tickets, but giving the extra ticket to our roommate Murph instead of to me. So I was the one outside trying to scalp a ticket on my way in, I had never seen the dead. And people were offering up 50 to $75 a ticket. I was like, I am so out of here and uh, missed that show. But that's okay. Even though they closed the theater after that, we never got another chance to go in. But this show, uh, as we'll get into later, comes right around the time that the Go to Heaven album was released. There's some great tunes on there. We're going to take a deep dive into Alabama Getaway and uh, a lot of other good stuff. In fact, before we dive right into our show, uh, Dan, maybe you've got a little bit of music that our fans can listen to uh, and just get a sense of what's coming up down the road. His Alabama Getaway, of course, with uh, newly christened Grateful Dead keyboardist Brent Midland. Uh, and you can hear him all over the place in that song. And uh, we'll get to that and a lot of other good stuff in a few minutes. But first, let me say hey to my co-host, Rob Hunt, out in lovely California. Rob, how are you doing? Yeah, I'm doing great say Larry.
1: It's always good to hear a little bit of Alabama Getaway to get the show kicked off, uh, especially when Brent is just straight charging on the electric piano. It's one of my favorite sounds the Grateful Dead did. And for all the hype he gets about being kind of an organ player, you forget that he's got those electric piano chops as well. They're just absolutely just slaying it, especially so early in his career with the Grateful Dead. Yeah, you know, I, I never thought there was like a period of, of latency between the time that Brent got started with them till the time that Brent came to full
0: speed. It was, you know, almost instantaneous. Yeah. He, he was just such a talented musician and, you know, there he is on a classic Jerry Garcia tune, you know, right out of the box, you know, almost taking the lead out of Jerry's hands and, you know, really making it his own. And, It's great, and I look forward to getting to that in a few minutes. Uh, A good show that you've chosen, so uh, lots of good stuff for us to dig into there. On the marijuana news side, though, uh, we do have some interesting things going on. First and foremost, let's start uh, on the other side of the pond, if you will, and see that uh, Germany is uh, looking to go ahead and legalize adult use, which I believe would make them the first European country, notwithstanding the idea of the coffee houses in Amsterdam, uh, which do serve a purpose but don't really serve in, in, in the sense we're used to it, that you can go and buy marijuana and take it back to your house and that kind of thing. And it looks like Germany's going to do it. And, you know, I, and I have to say I don't really find that very surprising given the direction that Germany has gone in the last few years on a number of issues. Uh, but nevertheless, that's a big thing for a country in the European Union to uh, uh, approve of adult use. What are your thoughts, Rob?
1: Yeah, I mean, it's been a long time coming. Europe has been pretty far behind the United States on this issue. And I always thought, you know, the United States is pretty far behind where it should have been. But, you know, you take a look at what's happening right now in Europe and you've had some progressive laws. You know, Switzerland for a while is pretty progressive. And you had Spain and Portugal obviously being really progressive as far as kind of like legalization of drugs in general. But no one's come out with a, um, with like a true commercial uh, system to, to sell and to uh, cultivate and process cannabis. You know, during the Merkel regime, Angela's, or Angela, I should say, was, uh, was pretty um, opposed to cannabis reform. So while we had a medicinal program in Germany, uh, an adult use program probably wasn't happening while she was still in power. But now with a new legislature or a new sort of uh, a composition of who's running that country, I, I think we're going to see movement really quickly. And that is the single largest, you know, by population, single largest uh, country in Europe. So if you want to talk about a catalyst to kick things off, you know, start really changing European policy. Germany, smack dab in the middle of the continent, certainly does a, a really nice job of, of forcing the hand of everyone else to start looking to to change their policy as well.
0: I was just going to say, I can you know practically imagine the folks in Great Bit Britain, France, Italy sitting around saying, you know, are we going to let Germany take the lead on this? You know, for God's sakes, so we've got to get out there in the forefront and we have to establish the standards. At least that would be, you know, nice if they all dived into it together. But if it's just Germany for now, that's fine. You know, they'll get the boost in. uh in green tourism, if you will, and uh, the rest of Europe can figure out what it wants to do later. I just applaud him for, you know, being willing to address the issue and move forward with it.
1: Yeah, for sure. And then the other great
0: thing about it is, you know, there are other countries that
1: are looking to be, you know, importers or exporters of their own product into Germany. And for a long time, that's always been kind of a dream. So, you know, you look at... uh, you know the Canadians a couple of years ago. You know, if you go back four years, you know Bruce Linton was screaming from the rooftops of like, oh well, part of the appeal of canopy is we're going to sell to Germany, we're going to sell to Europe. Well, that wasn't happening then. Like anyone that knew anything about the industry knew that a lot of that stuff was just a, a great way for them to try to fleece investors into making investments in those companies. But there was no like real pathway to uh, export Canadian canvas into the European Union. Well, for the first time now, there there really might be where you know you can actually say, okay, can we start exporting out of um, you know the Latin countries like Colombia, or start exporting out of like North Macedonia? You know, there's a lot of places that are dying for this market to open up because they've got product to sell to them. You know, Portugal's another one that I think could be an export uh, into Germany as well,
0: or Israel. Yeah, or Israel. Yep, for sure. Which you know, there's a certain poetic justice in that too, I suppose, letting Israel sell its marijuana back to Germany, but. You know, either way, I think to get that market going over there is uh, is a wonderful thing. You know, I certainly applaud the Germans for uh, for being willing to run with it. In fact, you know, (laughs) by contrast, of course, here in the United States, we have South Dakota. Although it's never our goal to really get very political on this show, uh, one cannot you know escape the fact that it's run by a governor who decried any need for any type of COVID protection in her state because. South Dakotans have homespun values that were going to protect them. Of course, they wound up with one of the highest hospitalization rates and a soaring death rate for a long time, uh, but that did not deter Christy Noam as she regularly allowed large events to take place in her state and kind of thumbs her nose at everyone and seems to have a good time doing it. Uh, But now she may have even gone too far in her own state, and and I'll tell you, Rob, this is going to be very interesting, in my opinion, to see just how strongly people feel about marijuana, but we talked about this briefly in the past, that in the last election, uh, South Dakota citizens overwhelmingly approved, I believe it was both medical and adult use marijuana, uh, for their state, which was really, you know, for some people a surprise, given how hard to the right that state swings these days, but for other people, not really such a surprise at all, because... As we've talked about, marijuana does not uh, uh, affect only liberals and not conservatives or Democrats and not Republicans. Everybody enjoys it and everybody participates and benefits from it, including South Dakota. And the people there were smart enough to realize it. But from the day that it was passed, good old Governor Noam has been making it a priority for her administration to find some way to invalidate that will of the voters. Very ironic for someone so concerned about steal the vote and everything else. But there's now a uh, a lawsuit apparently uh, that's being considered in the state of South Dakota uh, on some technicality that that, as I understand it, basically has to do. Uh, the idea was to legalize hemp, medical marijuana, and adult use marijuana. And some people are claiming, led by Governor Noam, that the ballot. Uh, didn't distinguish that you could vote for one and not the others and so people who for instance wanted hemp but didn't want marijuana really didn't have a choice except to vote yes at least is the way i understand the legal theory and you know whether it ultimately has any legs or not uh, is kind of beside the point um you know you can't run around screaming that the will of the voters has been thwarted in the presidential election for almost a year now and then just you know completely decide, I don't like marijuana, so I'm going to ignore the will of the voters in my state and authorize my uh, uh, state's attorney to go after it and and find any grounds that they can to challenge it.
1: It's actually a little different than that, Larry. What would happen was they've already struck it down, and they struck it down on the grounds that every law that's passed needs to be an individual law. And they said by encapsulating the three different portions that hemp, medical cannabis, and adult use cannabis, and consolidating them into one law the high court of South Dakota, the South Dakota Supreme Court, ruled four to one to say each one of those should have been a, a unique and separate issue. And because it was consolidated, it violated the uh, the one issue, one vote law. And so they struck it down the technicality of saying, oh, no, no, there should have been a, a, there have been a vote on adult use as one rule. It should have been voted on medical as, as one piece of legislation. It should have been voted on hemp as one piece of legislation. And because it was like an omnibus, you know, consolidated law, that's where they struck it down. So but the end result is the same. I mean, look, look, the damage is done. 54% of the voters in South Dakota wanted this passed. That's, you know, in, in any election, that's a landslide. Um, this wasn't even close, you know. So to have it uh, struck down now where they've got to start the whole process over again, it, you know, it's really, as you said, it's thumbing the nose at the, uh, at the voters in your state who have made a determination. They made an informed decision. And uh, ultimately, they're, they're not getting the law that they passed. But it's not the first time we've seen this.
0: You're right. And, and thank you for the clarification of that. Uh, you are right in the way you explained it. And it does make a difference in terms of where they're in the process and what's going on and what has and has not been motivating people. And while, you know, I suppose it's easy to say that the ballot initiative as phrased was in violation of this one issue, uh, one ballot uh, rule or whatever it is. But nobody bothered to raise the issue until after it was passed you know anyone before the election could have looked at it and said hey wait a second the way this issue is being presented is in violation of the state constitution this needs to be changed uh, i suspect that they were waiting to see if it would pass if it passed then they were ready to come in and make some sort of argument or at least look for the arguments that they weren't motivated to look for before but you know I, what i want to see now is you know is, is there enough motivation among the people of south dakota to go out and get the issues placed back on the ballot individually. And if so, it'll be fascinating to see if all three of them can pass separately. And if they can, then I guess we'll have to wait and see what Governor Noam decides to do next.
1: Yeah, I mean, if it does, then it probably won't happen until maybe the midterms at best, maybe the next presidential cycle. They've already succeeded. If the goal is to slow down the progress of, of cannabis legislation in the state of South Dakota, uh, they won the ballot. It's, it's already done. But I agree with you 100%. Normally, if you want to contest these things, you can test the language on the ballot prior to it. And you say, hey, look, that doesn't conform. You, know, you guys need to go back and start the process of collecting signatures all over again because the way you've drafted this thing doesn't pass muster. So try again or resubmit. Instead, as you said, they let the voters pass it. They approve the ballot language. If the ballot language is approved, you know, then the argument should be over. If it, if it makes it to the ballot, then there shouldn't be a question of, of saying, okay, now we're going to contest it later. And the fact that they did, I was really surprised to see the Supreme Court of South Dakota look at it from an election perspective and say, look, this is no longer ripe. You know, this is now uh, you know, it's it's past its prime and it's already been voted on. And as a result, are we you know, going to go back and contest the will of the voter? I was very surprised to see even a very conservative Supreme Court rule in favor of, of stopping this law.
0: Yeah, I guess. But that's always the problem I have, you know, with conservative politics is that they'll always say hands off, hands off, hands off, no government involvement until it strikes a nerve, right? Look at abortion, for God's sakes. I mean, where, where's the strength does all the anti-abortion energy come from? It comes from a group of people who otherwise scream bloody murder if the feds try to stick their nose into anything, you know, and and, and it's happening here too. The people of this state said they wanted it. I, 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 don't, I, I can't speak uh, competently on the makeup of the South Dakota Supreme Court, so I have no idea who the members are, what their uh, individual backgrounds are politically or personally or religiously or morally or whatever else drives them. But, you know, I, I think that these are the kind of things that we all kind of shake and shudder at a little bit that groups of highly conservative people who have always, you know, decried the liberals for trying to tell us, you know, what's good for people are going around trying to tell us what's good for people. Or, you know, in this case, what's not simply because it, it doesn't line up with their own very, very narrow version of what's right and what's wrong. And instead of just kind of going with the flow, you know, they don't. And you know, we've all heard the line before, but, you know, they are probably the people you know, most desperately in need. Have a really good bond hit right about now and they're the last ones likely to avail themselves to it and and, and that's really the problem and, and you know i i think that in the long run I, what i'm really hoping is we're going to see is that the people stand up and say look governor noam we may agree with you on all your other crazy nonsense but we like to get high, so on this one we're you know kicking you to the curb.
1: Yeah, I think that's right. So let, let's see how this one plays out. But you know, let's see how powerful cannabis is as a, a catalyst to get people to the, the ballot box. But you know, this may this may come out and backfire a little bit. I don't think it probably will, because you know South Dakota's composition is is pretty darn conservative. So do I think it's going to you know hurt uh, Chrissy Nome's chances at reelection? Probably not. But you know, I, I think the, uh, the the measure will certainly pass again in whatever form. And if if you were to say handicap it today, and I'll go on the record right now and say it. I bet that each one of these passes with greater than 54 percent next time it's on the ballot significantly greater. And I think it will get a lot of younger people out to vote.
0: Well, that would be interesting, right, if, you know, she motivates her party and the people of her state enough to come out and say, hey, Governor, we really disagree with you on this enough to show you that we're going to come out in force necessary, uh, you know, to, to properly pass it. But look, you know, whatever it is, it is, you know, I'm always in favor of any state that wants to join the party, joining the party and why shouldn't they you know it, it, it's good for everybody it's going to be good for the people of the state we've all talked about that before and we know you know the statistics and stuff like that and it's even worse when the people of the state are saying yes let us in and you know one elected official is saying nope i know what's best and we're not going to do it so that's always been the problem underlying the opposition to the cannabis industry or the the do-gooders who think they know what's best for the rest of us and are unwilling to have their beliefs and their challenges their beliefs challenged you know by anything including actual scientific evidence so um but at least you know we, we have enough of a foothold now that we're here and we're not going away and that's all good tell us really quickly rob about what's going on in california regarding testing right now
1: well the attempt right now is to try to consolidate um a standard of analytical standard um, to give labs kind of the same uh uniform policies on how to test because yeah, I think a lot of people are aware of this, and it's something I've been sort of fighting since back when I lived in Colorado, you know, in 2013 and 14 when the first laws were being written, is there is no standard uh, procedures as to, you know, what designates the uh, the proper lab policies to test for potency, to test for residual solvents, to test for pesticides. You name all the different things that are put into these lab tests. And it's not like, you know, there's a, a standardization where the state says, you can only use liquid gas chromographic systems. You can only use you know, the following uh, tests. You can, there, there's certain standards around like, what kind of a plant sample you need to provide, but what's happened over the years, and everyone's aware of it, anyone in the industry is aware of it, The people go out there and lab shop, and they lab shop for who's going to give them you know, the tests that pass them on pesticides, the tests that are going to give them the highest potency. You know, for them, when they go to the, uh, the wholesale market and they sell their product, oftentimes the price that they're paid is dictated by you know, what their potency is. So if one lab tests them and it's at 24%, you know, THC and another lab tests and they're testing out 28% THC, well, guess what? They're always going to go to the lab that gives them the higher potency. So eventually something has to give Either you've got to go out there and audit, you know, all these different groups and say, okay, show us how you're doing your tests and let's make sure that we think it meets our standards, you know, certification standard, or you need to uh, create some sort of uh, specific criteria to say, this is how lab testing can happen. And that's what California is attempting to do. And, you know. If they can get this done, if they can get it where they get the buy-in from you know, all the different lab testing companies and they get the buy-in from you know, the industry as a whole to do this, it's going to be a great thing for the industry because it should shut down this ability to go lab shop.
0: What is the current buzz on the street, if you will, that you're hearing about from the, the labs themselves? Are they in favor of this? It makes their jobs easier if they can say, this is the way the state wants us to do it, or oops, now we're kind of losing a way to you know, bring a little extra business in the door. I think
1: it depends on what lab you talk to. <laughs> you know, it's, a, it's the, the labs out there that are, uh, that are giving the good results that, you know, are, you know, for those guys, that's how they derive their revenue. So if they, if they get their reputation out there, it's, it's kind of like being the dealer with the strongest heroin, you know, like everyone wants to go to that dealer. Uh, if you're the lab that um, is giving you guys the best results, then, uh, then everyone flocks to that group for a while. So, you know, if, if you're that group and you found a way to, to kind of boost numbers up in favor of deriving more revenue, you're probably vehemently opposed to this. But if you're a lab out there that really believes in the science and you're trying the best you can to put out the best results to the marketplace, you applaud this. So I think time will tell, but ultimately, ultimately I think the, um, it's the best thing for the state. And I think that a lot of people would support that. The only people that would be against it are the ones that are, you know, kind of riding dirty already.
0: Okay. Well, let's see what happens with it. And, uh, you know, if it can make it, you know, what it does for the industry out there, I'm sure the rest of the country will be watching. California does tend to model for the rest of us and, uh, that could be a good one. Let's take a uh, change of direction here now, if you will, and uh, let's dive back into this wonderful Uptown show. You uh, you chose this show for us today, Rob, so go ahead, lead off, and tell us why, what you like about it, and uh, why the listeners should pull it down and listen to it themselves. Sure, yeah.
1: So, I mean, look, let's let's start by saying I'm a huge fan of 1979. You know, I've made that clear. Like, you know, I, I say it all the time from, you know, the time that Jim Marty saw his first show in Springfield all the way through, you know, the end of the uh, the Keith and Donna era and going into the Brent era. You know, I, I think that transition, you know, I, I kind of look at it as, like, the cocaine dead years, and, um, you know, they're super fired up, hard-charging, and I love all the stuff they started introducing, basically, like I think, from about August 4th on, which is all the material that's going to be Go to Heaven, which would include Lost Sailor, Sitting in Circumstance, Althea, uh, Alabama Getaway, Easy to Love You, which is one of, I think, Brent's first tune that he introduced out there. There's just a handful of new material that came out for this album that they started playing
0: in August. And don't use me in.
1: <laughs> yeah, which is a, it's a totally random one, right? You take, you, you take all these, and by the way, like a lot of albums that they released, they've been playing the song for four, five, six years before that. I mean, you look at like in the dark, like Touch of grace, started being played in 83. It wasn't released until 87, right? So, you know, this is all material, though. They released um, Go to Heaven, I think, in April of 1980. And all the material started being played for the first time no more than a few months before, basically August of nineteen seventy nine, and only played a handful of times before it actually you know made it onto the album. So you know these were all like truly new songs going onto a new album, and this is the chance like late seventy nine is when they started you know kind of beta testing all of it. So why do I love this show? I, I love this one because it's got like over half the album on it, and it's you know closes the first set with with four tunes in a row to to finish it off. So the end of the set is easy to love you, Althea, lost sailor, saint. And it opens with an Alabama, greatest, uh, Alabama getaway into A Greatest Story, but, you know, that's, that's five new tunes uh, in the first set. And then, you know, there is a Doney's Encore, but as you said, you know, Doney's been playing since 66, so, you know, not, not a, a, like, how it ended up on album in 1980, I've got no idea.
0: Well, isn't that like Minglewood Blues, which always seem to show up on an album every ten or twenty years? New, new, all new Minglewood Blues—the really all new Minglewood Blues, or whatever. You know, then you know. Look, you know, don't ease or you know, don't sleaze, as my buddies called it. You know, was almost always okay. Time to get out. You know, either get to the bathroom, it's the set break, or, you know, it's the end of the show or whatever. And but look, you know, Jerry likes it and he likes to play it. So you know, these days, as I tell people, I would gladly go pay money to hear Jerry play. Don't Ease me. In. You know, the funny
1: thing about ease is that I think we've talked. About- before, there's very few songs that clock in at like two and a half minutes or less in the Grateful Dead's catalog. And Donnie's is one, Me and Mindful is another one, where Me and Mindful, I think, is two minutes almost to the dot every single time. But a lot of people don't realize that when bands play on stages, oftentimes they have a countdown clock that says, you know, there's so much time you have to play, you know, before, uh, before a set break or before like the curfew. So I think oftentimes Donnie's wasn't probably on the set list and they're like, okay, we still have, you know, eight minutes left to fill. Let's just throw Donies in there, you know, like just to just to give them like one more. So, uh, and I've always looked at it that way. So it, was, it was like a throwaway set closer.
0: Right. Yeah, I'm sure, you know, whatever. But again, you know, it was like a lot of, you know, tunes from that era, uh, Little Red Rooster, C.C. C. Rider, that, you know, either seemed to be overplayed or, you know, and, and those were the tunes where they'd start, we'd always kind of be like, yeah, but then all of a sudden, halfway through the tune, you realize that Jerry's just jamming away and you're like, oh, yeah, no, this is actually pretty good. I'm enjoying this a lot. I don't, you know, this is fine. Keep playing this. Same with Donny's. You know, we'd always get over the, okay, here it is. But then, you know, he's when he starts getting into it on the good nights, you know, the girl I love and, you know, that kind of stuff, and he really just belts out the lyrics and everything, and he can have a lot of fun with it sometimes. It's also one of the
1: only songs where Jerry sways, where you'd see him, like, rocking back and forth side to side on a ease is pretty common. Like, there's something about that groove that, that made him, you know, kind of rock the guitar neck back and forth. So uh, I agree. You know, you can't you can't discount it when it actually you know, shows a great deal of enthusiasm on the stage. Right.
0: Uh, true, and I mean, there, there, there's the, the songs on this album are also interesting. Not you know just because of their musical quality, but because of the lyrics and everything. We could spend you know an hour or two just going through each and every one of them. You know, my my personal favorite on the album is uh, "Althea." I, that to me is a, you know, I, I know that's a very John Mayer-esque type song to talk about these days. But John Mayer knows what the hell he's talking about, so that's a great tune, and I love listening to it. I'm not giving that one to Mary yet.
1: I mean, look, dude, that like that's one of like Garcia's greatest songs ever written. I think anyone's a serious. Well, like... oh,
0: I'm not giving it to him. No, no, no. I'm just saying I know he really likes it too. I'm kind of giving him a shout out for sure but, i mean there's,
1: there's now this association that exists where everyone like associates althea with mayor because that was a song that kind of got mayor to you know do dead and co right but you know and when you think about what your favorite first set jerry tunes are i mean for me on the slow jerry like obviously there's the second set ballads that you'd love right but for the first set ballads like for me it's althea and sugary that are the two that like you know consistently like, i don't care where i am i'll hear those songs every day
0: Now, Althea is is a tremendous tune, and, and I told this story years ago. And if I've told it too many times, and I'm sorry, and I'll never tell it again. But when I was at uh, Denico a few years ago at Folsom Field with my good buddy Bob Hoben uh, and Steve Shane and Patrick Goggin, uh, the crew from the Hoban Law Group, and we were all out there having a great time at Folsom Field. Bob was a great host, and everybody was enjoying themselves. Good music, beautiful scenery, and there were kids on the bench behind us, you know. 19 years old and I was really amazed you know at how these young kids had really you know kind of like stepped right into the whole scene and you know they knew everything and they knew the tunes and they dressed the same way and they talked just like we did at that age and they were going back and forth and they start playing healthy and oh, yeah, that's mayor's favorite tune. Oh, yeah, he plays it great. I heard him play it last time. It was awesome. And finally, you knew it was coming. One of them says, you know, I think he plays it better than Garcia. And I and I just stopped, you know, and I turned around. And I was like, look, guys, none of my business. With all due respect, you guys are great. I'm so happy you're out here. Loving all of this. Everybody's entitled to their own opinion. But yours is wrong but <laughs> right. I saw Garcia play Althea live, I don't know, probably 20 or 30 times. I've heard it. You know, go listen to whatever it was, Dick's Pick 16 or 17, that has, you know, in my mind, like, the best version of Althea ever recorded. Go listen to that, then come back. God bless you, but no, not a chance. <laughs> Just yeah. not a chance. No, it's,
1: it's not even close. And You know, I think as far as, like, Hunter's lyrics, uh, it, it's hard to top Althea. It's, you know, like, There's no better song that I can think of that sort of uh, articulates the girl that got away. Right.
0: Right, absolutely. It's just, uh, yeah, it, it's a lot of fun. Uh, my good buddy from Michigan, uh, Tommy, was his favorite tune. And he, he was an English major. You know, we could sit and, that's why I'm bringing it up, because you could sit and really go through that tune for a while and really pick out all the literary allusions or whatever they're called, references, and stuff that, that uh, Hunter would always throw in, you know, and, and we forget that not only is he, a, is he a great songwriter, he's a really, really smart songwriter. He was an educated man. I mean, he knew... He he knew the classics. He knew the the Bible, as we'll talk about in a few minutes, and he was able to freely pull those ideas and associate them into dead tunes all the time. Yeah, definitely,
1: definitely. I'll tell you, I actually tried in three different states to get Althea as my license plate, and every state that I tried, they already someone had already snaked it. So obviously, you know, like I'd have to probably live in you know Alaska or like Wyoming to be able to get it. Even then, I'm not sure if I could.
0: Or you have to be willing to be Althea 37 or 38 or whatever number they're on. You know? And at that point, it's like, now nah, there's too many other people that have it. I'll, I'll find some other way to incorporate it. But uh, tell us about this clip we have right now that Dan's going to play for us. Give us an intro to that.
1: Well, I think right now we're going to listen to a little bit of the transition towards the end of the first set from uh, the Lost Sailor into the Saint, which is always one of my favorite transition jams. You kind of go from that slow, looping um, Lost Sailor into like the, the high energy of a Saint coming out. So maybe we'll take a listen to that and then maybe we'll talk a little bit more about some of the, um, the songs on the album. We're Is Last station on the you know, I, I love that they put those two together and uh, it's one of those pairings that you kind of just assume are always going to be together the way like a Scarlet Fire is or Helps of Franklin's is but it took them a solid month of playing uh, Lost Sailor before they introduced Saint of Circumstance and it was a little ways after that before they started playing. I think the first time they actually did them back to back was, you know, maybe the end of August. I think August 31st is the first time they played Saint and I think August 4th of 79 uh, was the first time they played Played a Lost Sailor, so it's like now it's like peanut butter and jelly. I can't I can't think of them being apart. Even though like in the '90s, all you ever got was the Saint. Like they they dropped the Lost Sailor and just played the Saint. But in the '70s, early '80s, you know it's like you, you couldn't imagine a Lost Sailor without a Saint following it.
0: No, when I first started seeing him in '82 for a, a number of years, that was. Standard second set material, you know, it, it would just be, uh, and it was always, you know, wonderful and very much appreciated, and you know, the the whole kind of arc, almost story arc, you know, from one to the next, and the uh, uh, the great guitar playing and the great jam, and, and, and this wonderful transition where, you know, as I listen to it again, I I always in my in my memory kind of remember it's just the music tumbling, in but when I hear it, and there was almost always that intentional one stop rest, and then boom, they'd go right into the next one. And it was great. And, you know, it was one of the first tunes where, you know, it really occurred to me that the dead were still changing it around right as they played with the lyrics, you know, so this must be heaven last station on the line. It used to be tonight I crossed the line And, and, you know, somewhere along the way, Bobby, you know, there's a few examples of that in that tune, particularly where Bobby was still, you know, Ken quite settled on what he wants the lyrics to be and how he wants them to go, and I think it's great. I love listening to it. It's a highlight of this show, and usually a highlight of any show they play it at. I think Saint's such a great set
1: closer, and it's not something I ever saw as a set closer. You know, I don't know why they didn't do it more, but it's a naturally kind of way to go out with everyone sort of, you know, screaming in unison, sure don't know what I'm going for, but I'm going to go for it for sure. It's something that I would have expected, they would have kept in that slot instead of, you know, third song into um, the second set, which is kind of where it ended up falling in place, you know, later on in the repertoire. But I, I love it as a set closer. No,
0: I think it's a wonderful set closer. And, and on the clip we were just listening to, I was chuckling because even back then in 79, Bobby was having a real trouble hitting the high notes and the going on a feeling right at the end of the Lost Sailor, right before the transition. And he tries really hard to climb up that ladder vocally, but he just can't quite get up there. But you, you got to applaud the effort and the fact that, you know, I don't think he really cares. He's just having a good time and, and jamming on it. So that, that's wonderful, too. Let's spend a few minutes talking about Alabama Getaway, man. That's a, that's a song that's just deep and loaded. I know it's one of your favorites. Um, what are your thoughts on it?
1: You know, I've, I've deconstructed this song so many times in my head to try to get a sense of what's going on in that song. Because, the, the, first of all, let's just start with the fact that you don't know in the song whether Alabama refers to a person, refers to a state, or refers to both. And I think, you know, the, the more you listen to it, the more you kind of have to assume it's both. You know, I think... Uh, in the the first couple of verses, Alabama's definitely referring to uh, what I perceive to be a, a guy that's really trying the patience of the person who's listening. Uh, right from the opening line of you know thirty two teeth in the jawbone, Alabama trying crying for none. You know just the idea of you know you keep this you keep this shit up, man. I'm I'm taking a swing at you, and uh, you know, before I have to hit him, I hope he's got the sense to run. It's uh, it, I mean it's a powerful opening opening lyric. But you know that also could be a um, a metaphor or a personification of, of kind of the feelings about the state of Alabama at that time, and how the Grateful Dead or how you know Hunter was feeling about Alabama at that time. Because as the song goes on, you know there's a lot of um, a lot of references to um, to kind of not great feelings about the state of Alabama, and then also you know kind of you know, some of that like antebellum you know kind of feelings of uh, of the Deep South at that time as well.
0: Well, right. I mean, they do more than that. I mean, make in the song make a direct reference to. Bill Bojangles, who was a very famous uh, actor, dancer, movie star. The first part of last century was often seen in movies. Uh, one in particular, I don't remember the name of the movie, Dancing with Shirley Temple, and uh, was was kind of, I, I guess, the epitome of the acceptable. You know, black actor that you know white people felt comfortable going to see and uh, (laughs) the the Wayne Brady of his time. The Wayne, thank you, the Wayne Brady of his time. You know, and and they call him you know in the in the lyrics, major domo, which you know you and I have been talking about. And of course, major domo has a a lot of meanings, but one that it's often associated with was the uh, the black slave on the plantation who was ultimately seen as kind of the leader of all the others. You know, either working in the in the main house with the owner of the plantation, or somehow being, you know, charged by the owner with being responsible for everything associated with the slaves. And, and you know, here we're talking about, uh, you know, Billy Bojangles, and, uh, um, you know, what his role is with, you know, kind of Alabama, and, you know, and I guess some people always had the image of him kind of being the guy who was always happy-go-lucky, always with that silly smile on his face, which, you know, I think many people, uh, certainly in the South at that point in time, associated with black people who were entertainers you know they weren't perceived as a threat because they were smiling and they were happy and they were dancing and they were making you happy i i, I don't think that uh, i mean it's clear hunter doesn't pull back any punches here you know he he really goes after him with that um you know the reference to the uh, 23rd psalm and we can you know talk about that in a minute too because that seems to be a constant grateful dead theme but you know he's 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 basically, you know, when you want to talk about the Lord's prayer, man. You're, you know, you're, you're calling somebody on the table and saying, "Hey, you're not acting the way you know the Lord wants us to."
1: I, I love the fact that he's almost seeking, you know, the advice of, um, and, and Billy Bojangles is Billy Bojangles Robinson, right? And, and asking for the advice of, um, of. of you know, hey, come over, sit down, have a drink with me, and, you know, what do you think about the situation? And and the response, you know, that comes back in the next verse is basically like, you know, look, let them do as they do, and eventually they give them enough rope and they'll hang themselves, you know. Like the the, the attitude of Alabama in the Deep South at that time is, from the perspective of the major domo, is let, let these guys uh, make fools of themselves.
0: Right. They'll hang themselves. And, you know, I love the line about 49 sister states have Alabama in their eyes, you know? You can't say it any more plainly than that. You know, we're all watching you down there, folks. You better, you know, you better really figure it out. Uh, You know, it's interesting because Hunter and Garcia are, you know, are not the first ones to take open swipes at the Deep South and all of that. And and Neil Young, of course, is famous for doing it in Southern Man. Leonard Skinner is just as famous for answering back in Sweet Home Alabama. And you know, for whatever the reason, I guess they decided that they wouldn't go after. the Garcia, Although Sweet Home Alabama probably came out before this, didn't it? So uh, they, they they couldn't quite uh, touch on it yet.
1: Yeah, it did. Neil Young did it twice. He did it in the song Alabama as well. Alabama. So, you know, there's two that came off of that album that were, you know, direct shots at, uh, at the state of Alabama.
0: Very true. But yet, you know, I mean, it, it, it's such a fun song when he plays it that, you know, you know. T- it was always a tough one to pick the lyrics up on right you're never quite sure exactly what they were saying the uh you know the only way to please me what are you saying after that jerry you know and, and you know now of course just sit down
1: and leave and walk away well
0: i always thought it was just sit down and leave but that never made any sense to me right so you know then i thought maybe he's saying just turn around and leave and walk away but apparently according to the anthology it's just get down and leave and walk away yeah it's
1: a, i've seen it printed in many different ways i've seen it turn around and leave and walk away or just sit down and leave and walk I've, seen it, I've heard it sung different ways as well but i was in my in my head i always put it as just sit down and leave and walk away
0: yeah, well which again which is what i did but I, I could never reconcile that image of telling somebody to sit down and walk away at the same time but you know hunter was hunter so who the yeah. hell knows
1: but yeah there is the, uh, the the 23rd psalm uh reference in this song and you know, it's not just when they say 23rd Psalm, uh, Major Domo, but it's also the next two lines, which is reserve me a table for three, and in the Valley of the Shadow, it's just you, Alabama, and me. And so the Valley of the Shadow is, you know, from the, the Psalm of, you know, when we walk through the Valley of the Shadow of Death, and, uh, and it's also a reference to, you know, sitting down, I think, for the, the supper. So there have been several times where Hunter has included the 23rd Psalm in his writings, and it's predominantly in Alabama getaway, and I think also in Ripple, where, you know, the reference to, you know, if your cup be empty, may it be again, versus the 23rd song, which is, you know, when your cup o- overfloweth. And then there's also the, um, the still water reference. So it's, you know, there, there's certainly, it's, it, it's strange to me that one song, Hunter's kind of found a way to integrate it in to some of his probably best-known lyrics. I mean, obviously, I think of Ripples being the song that's going to en- endure itself, you know, throughout the world for generations to come. I mean, I think that's the song that kids will sing in camp forever. I don't think Alabama Getaway quite has that same staying power lyrically, but it certainly has, you know, a a fair amount of like biblical reference in this. And again, it's, I think, um, uh, if if I were to deconstruct this, it's a self-reflection of, you know, take a look at what you're doing and compare it to, you know, what you say versus what you do.
0: I I think that's true, but, you know, uh, one of the things about, you know, that, I, I, I mean, I instinctively know that Jerry writes the music for all of these, Hunter writes the lyrics, but I never really spent enough time, you know, trying to understand how the music that you know what jerry is thinking about the song when he writes the music how does you know what makes me think i'm going to play alabama getaway and this really kind of pick me up giddy up kind of tune and althea is going to be kind of a more you know softer lilting lyrics instead of the other way around and i don't know if that's just the way it worked out for him or if by doing that you know he's kind of saying hey you know we're we're, we're really getting tired with you folks in alabama let's just deal with this or you know trying to take the lyrics and maybe almost hide them a little bit in an otherwise very upbeat you know rock and roll very Peppy. It's a great opening number when you see the dead. You know, if, if they come out, and they start playing that. Everybody's up on their feet dancing immediately. And um, you know, especially you get at the end if you know Jerry's willing to go through that that um, uh, Alabama getaway lyric. You know, and the, at the very end he'll usually do it three or four times. One night he did it five times, and the place went wild. And uh, you know, people kind of I think use that as a gauge for where is Jerry's at. Of course, the flip side of that is is that I would be willing to wager that this single song, he probably screws up the lyrics to more than any other song in in, in the entire dead catalog. I mean, just he gets the lyrics out of order and he forgets them and he just kind of a few times and whatever, you know. He gets to the lyrics and he knows what he's doing and the band just, they just, you know, let him go. It's great stuff. I think uh, Uncle John's is
1: the other one. I think he always messes up, whether it's uh, By the Riverside or Playing to the Tide.
0: Right. Right. Right, yeah, they can never keep that one straight either, you know. But, uh, yeah, you know, it's just funny because, um, you know, you try to sing along with him and all of a sudden he screws up the lyrics and so then it totally messes me up for a minute. Wait, was I got, did I get it wrong? Did he get it wrong?
1: Isn't that so funny how that works? Like, when you're singing along with it, sometimes you'll find yourself messing up at the same second that he does specifically because you get that, like, half moment of pause when you realize that he's changed, like, that he's unsure. And then you realize, no, no, I had it right all along. Right,
0: right. That's right. Exactly right. You know, because am I right or is he right? But no, I've I, I've done it enough times that I'm willing to give myself the benefit of the doubt over him in that situation. So. But, yeah, it it, it is a great song. And, um, uh, you know, when we stop and take a a look at what's going on there, you know, it does have a little bit of meaning to it that I think is probably worthwhile for people to to look at, especially, you know, in this day and age of uh, uh, Black Lives Matter and Me Too and, you know, everything else that's going on. You know, it's important to know that just because, you know, you. Uh, may have a particular view about the way you want the world to be. That may not be the way the rest of the world sees it. At least, you know, I'd like to hope some people get that message out of it. And, it, you know,
1: look, you brought up another
0: really good point that I'd like to touch on, which is, it's hard to say
1: how uh, a musician decides for a song to be like a slow, you know, um, you know, me- mellow ballad versus a rocker when it could go either way. You know, and there's definitely songs we've heard people re- can- redo that they turn a very mellow song into a, a hard rocker. We've even seen you know, songs where the Grateful Dead have decided to play them fast versus slow, like "Eyes of the World" or "Friend of the Devil," where they've they've gone back and forth and said let's let's do it a different way than we used to. But there's certain songs where I, I definitely think the intent of the music in between verses is to tell the story through music where there aren't words. And I'd I'd say that songs like "Althea" is a prime example that that the sort of self reflection that's happening before the final verse is you know meant to give the the audience you know time to think about what the last verse was to reach the ultimate conclusion. I think Warfrat does that really well as well. You know, we're, there's, there's true introspection that's happening there. I think that certainly the jam and Jack Straw, you know, is, is kind of like... They don't, you know, discuss, you know, kind of the, what happened, you know, going into the murder. But, you know, the last verse certainly talks about it. And the power of that jam building up is certainly alluding to what the ultimate conclusion is. And I think The Dead were really, really good that way. And I think when, you know, other musicians talk about them, one of the things they always say is just how well connected, you know, musically they were to their emotions... And the emotion that they they put out was, you know, specific. I mean, look at the build up in Morning Dew before the final, you know, before the final verse. Those are uh, those are, are powerful pieces of music
0: specifically meant to evoke a certain, you know, thought in your mind going into what the ultimate conclusion of the song is. I think you're right, you know, and it's funny because, you know, I talk about it with my buddies sometimes. We hear Alabama Getaway and it's almost, you know, in my mind I hear that and I think of it, it's almost got like a southern rockabilly twang to it. But then I stop and take a step back and say does it really, or do I just associate it that way? So I think I hear that in it, but I, you know, there's that to do 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 do. I mean, it, it sounds like, you know, a Southern band, a rock band sets up and Hey guys, let's, 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 let's jam away. And, and, you know, I, maybe I'm, you know, they're, they're just trying to catch that kind of energy and that mood and spirit in it. And
1: you're right. I mean, like if it wasn't Brent Midland playing the keys on this thing, like you could easily put Jerry Lee Lewis or, um, or Greg Allman in to play those keys and who are like your classic southern rocker, like you know rockabilly early piano players, i mean like like this this could be jerry lee lewis's song, no problems, you know, based on the way it's played
0: well that too, and and you know in that regard, you know talking about Brent, I think that. You know, it's important to note that this was their first Brent album. You know, so this was, you know, they, they have written this song. Could could Jerry have played this song with Keith on the piano? I suppose he could have. You know, he, he did lots of great tunes with Keith on the piano. But this, you know, these tunes really sound like they, they're they're written and built to incorporate Brent and his sounds. Or, you know, at least Brent and his sounds fit in very, very nicely with them, as it turns out. I know we've been talking about Brent a lot lately, but it was funny because when I went to the archive.org website for, for this show to to start listening to some of the music. I was reading the comments below and it, it almost very quickly devolves into a, you know, Brent versus Keith debate. And people saying, ah, you know, I I don't like any of these tunes. That sound with Brent Midland, that's that's too you know pop electric keyboardy for me, man. Give me, you know, Keith Gaucho. And somebody else writes in, anybody who doesn't like Brent Midland never liked the Grateful Dead. So somebody else writes, you can't say that, man. I saw a million shows and I love Keith, you know. But it, it just you know, I mean, look, it was going through a very sensitive time for the Dead. It was a, it's certainly a change in style. And, and I'd like to think that when this album came out, that those people who were you know. Uh, not quite you know in line with Brent yet heard the work that he was doing on this and at least were willing to give him a chance
1: well you know there is a there's some speculation the Alabama getaway was also a condemnation of Donna which you know I, I wouldn't bring up but she's the only person from Alabama that's in that band it was right after they had broken up that they wrote this song of you know whether there was some sort of negative influence I, I I tend to discount that because I think the band you know always held Donna in very high regard but She's the only true, you know, tie to Alabama, and he, even, you know, uh, Billy Bojangles Robinson was actually from Virginia, so it wasn't, it wasn't an allusion to him, and so, uh, you know, if you're going to say what the tie is, I mean, it was that, and the other speculation is that The Dead had, had some shows canceled in Alabama just before this, and they were like, to hell with those guys, you know, to hell with that state. So you you never know. But I'll tell you, I, I'd love to see you know how they actually put a song together like this and construct it, especially after watching the um, the Beatles Get Back thing recently. And I don't know if you've seen that yet, but watching McCartney put together, I mean, the last week, I think the whole world's been taken you know by storm by this. But if that's the process that some people go through, I mean, I'd love to hear, you know, Garcia playing the riff and saying, here's the lyrics, and all of a sudden having Brent come in going, well, what do you think about this? Bah, 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 you know, and, and really trying it out, because, like, you, you never get to see that part of the process, and it's got to be so cool to watch the creativity, especially, like, now that we've seen it firsthand from, from McCartney.
0: Right. No, I, I agree. And, you know, the, the, I mean, there's, there's lots of stories about, you know, what it was like to be back in the recording studio with the dad when Jerry was, you know you know, trying to sound out new tunes and how he and Billy worked out some new songs and other, and whoever he was with, he could just go ahead and sit down and, you know, and, and get it eventually figured out. And yeah, it, it's, it, it, it's a great album uh, go to heaven. I think a lot of times it gets a little bit of short shrift from deadheads. you know, as, as maybe like the first kind of, you know, new album, soft dead, if you will, kind of thing that, you know, kind of started pushing them in a new era, but you know, when you go and you hear, you know, the the tunes that just come barreling out of there in concert, it, it seems like anything but that to me. It just is, you know, they had a new keyboard player, they discovered a new direction to go. And much like uh, um, American Beauty and, and Working Man's Dead helped define them when they were going from Acid Rock to Americana, you know, this kind of helps them with their transition into their next era. Yeah, for sure. And
1: I, I think the other thing is that people have to remember that, you know, kind of the Shakedown Street and, and Go to Heaven years were you know, kind of the years of, of albums in general being overproduced. If you look at like you know what Steely Dan was doing at that time, or you know some of the other um, Fleetwood back at that time, there is a lot of like overproduction happening in the studio. So if you don't like, you know, if, if you like the more raw, stripped down versions of like some of the stuff in the in the mid '70s, I get it. But you know, the trend at that time was recording studios were you know adding multiple channels that didn't exist before, and they're cleaning
0: things up, and you're getting a much more uh, produced sound true and you know i mean to one degree we're, we're, we're talking about how it sounds on the album you know i mean uh, when i when i would hear these songs in concert you know they they played them with the same energy and with the, you know just like any of the other ones and You know, look. In my generation, you know, when all of a sudden, uh, you know, the last couple of albums and some of those tunes came on, days between, and somebody wrote well, so many ones I loved right away. But uh, I'm you know talking about ones that came on. It took me some of the newer Bobby ones, (laughs) Victim, yeah, Carino, right? You know, I mean, I would hear them and I'd be like, yeah, this is the dead. That's all fine, but it would really take me a while you know, to open myself up to, like, saying, okay, this isn't a waste of time. I'm happy they're playing this, even if it means they're not playing Althea or something else. And, you know, I I could see where it takes people a while to to become accepting of it and and get into it and whatever. But, uh, you know, and everybody's always going to be entitled to their opinions, and so, you know. But, uh, you know, I think that Brent Midland when we've talked about this ad nauseum was you know not only a great musician but you know so key and instrumental to giving the dead new life as they went into the 1980s and really keeping them at the top of their game for that entire decade uh you know and i think it's no uh, coincidence that when he dies uh right at the beginning of the 90s you know and vince steps in and no slam against vince because we've talked about him and and i think vince was a very talented keyboard player too just put in a very difficult situation you know, that's that's the, the beginning of the period of time that people talk about is kind of the beginning of the end and, you know, the downward uh, trend and direction the band was going in after that. And, um, you know, had, had Brent been a little more careful in his personal habits and survived a few more years, who's to say... You know what might have happened and you know how jerry may or may not have been inspired and you know how many more wonderful years of music we could have gotten out of these guys but it is what it is and you know at the end of the day we have these great albums to remind us and these great shows you know to really hear how they just came in you know whether you were ready for them or not they said here they are you know just so go ahead and love them because we're going to keep playing them and they did and i did so it worked out well
1: for sure well The rest of the show, you know, I think it's worth, we've spoken a lot about the first set, the rest of the show is definitely worth listening to. You get a lot of, you know, kind of the Shakedown Street songs in the second set between Shakedown, Samson, Miracle, you know, there's a handful there as well. But, uh, but there's a really terrific Black Peter that I think we'll play as we're, we're going off the air today, which is, you know, one of my favorites. I, I always forget how much I love Peter until um, until I hear it. It's, you know, if you said, what's your you know favorite second set ballad, I, I probably wouldn't think to put Peter in the top three. But there's times I hear it and I go, guys, absolutely love that song.
0: It, it, it's a wonderful tune. I love Black Peter. We were joking about it, you know. I think one of the prior shows you know that the, the dad will be coming out of something and you're like okay here they go we're getting ready for that big Jerry ballad and everybody's waiting for that big huge morning dew and they play back Pete, Black Peter and there's this oh, okay it's not morning dew and you know unfortunately I think that that taints us on. you know it, it makes it hard on Black Peter but you know once I learned the lyrics and I was able to follow the story and you know really not only do I appreciate the lyrics but I appreciate even more Jerry's music for it and the way it's all put together it's it's a beautiful tune, and I could listen to it all day. It's a story of hope. Right. It is. It's a story of life. You know, it's a, it's a story we're all going to get to a certain point in life, and eventually we're all going to die, and, you know, all we can do, like you say, is, you know, hope that we have just a few, ba- a, you know, a, a friend or two I love at hand, right? That's about as, as, as simple a request as a human can make.
1: Hey, just one more day, I find myself alive.
0: (laughs) Tomorrow, go beneath the ground. (laughs) Okay, well, whatever. You know, you have to have the the, the sunny side with the the dark side, I guess, to make it all work. Well, this was great, man. Great show, great uh, show selection for us uh, to do our deep dive on that and really have some fun with it. Uh, Hopefully, we have Jim Marty back next week. He'll have some good stuff to tell us about, uh, both about his career personally, uh, hopefully about this lovely site visit he got to do. And uh, some more updates on the music that he's been listening to. And again, uh, we'll have another great show to talk to you guys about and go from there. So, uh, any parting words, Rob? Uh, not too
1: many. I mean, just, you know, in the words of hope for the world these days, you know, I really hope after, you know, what we're seeing again with gun violence around the country that we get our act together as a nation and start figuring this shit out because enough is enough. And, uh, and I really hope that, you know, we start seeing some better news out of the Supreme Court of the United States as well. So, Let's hope, um, let's hope that the next couple of months go better than this one. And so I think, I think Peter's a very appropriate song to, to end with tonight.
0: I do. I think you're right. Those are excellent points, and there's not a whole lot more that needs to be said other than thank you to everyone for listening. Uh, we hope you'll join us again next week. Uh, enjoy your cannabis responsibly and enjoy Black Peter. Goodbye, everyone. <coughs>